dress tonight. I heard it was a white sock affair, so I wore my white socks, and thankfully you all are dressed up too. This evening we are going to be uh, beginning our study of covenant theology. I'd like to open by looking at Zechariah 9. I'd like you to place yourself at the time of Zechariah when it seems that the whole Israelite project was going up in flames. Zechariah 9, this would be a passage that has the word covenant in it. We'll find lots and lots of those passages in Scripture, won't we? Well over uh, nearly 300 passages in Scripture have the word covenant in them. But I'd like to begin with Zechariah 9, verse 9, reading to verse 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your, tra- your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I'd like you to think about what they would have understood by this word, blood of the covenant, this phrase, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And I would suggest that this really uh, starts us well on this project of looking at covenant theology together because if you look at this passage in isolation, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. What blood, what covenant? Is this a special covenant? What is he talking about? But then in, in light of that reference to the donkey and the colt and riding into Jerusalem, of course, being fulfilled by our Lord, we see that the covenant project of the Lord really focuses on Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And this is where we're going with our, uh, our whole week, really, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ together when we talk about the covenant. Well, I'd like to uh, begin by mentioning that I read recently in an academic journal that uh, was written by a, a professor at a small Bible college, a dispensational school, who uh, had this line in it. I'll try to remember you know, exactly. He said that dispensationalists believe in the biblical covenants and hold to the biblical covenants, and covenant theologians hold to the theological covenants. And when I first read that, I, I was, had been reading some of the earlier covenant theologians in the history of our, of our movement, uh, soon after the Reformation, you know, men were writing on covenant theology and really generated what we think of as covenant theology very early, perhaps the 1580s. You can trace uh, a full development of covenant theology uh, starting out. So that's, that's pretty early after the Reformation era. Uh, elements of it go way back in the church. But I was, I was reading these men who uh, some of them were uh, the greatest biblical scholars of their day. Uh, one, one of our uh, covenant theologians wrote the Hebrew lexicon of, uh, that lasted for centuries, was a standard reference. Now, if he didn't know the Old Testament, I don't know who would. You know. 
He was an Old Testament scholar of great eminence. And yet, I was thinking about that more and, and thinking that, in a sense, that's true. In a sense, a certain sense, a dispensationalist holds to the biblical covenant. And I think what that means is they only understand covenant when the word is there and only really understand it in that particular passage and don't connect it well, in my opinion, with other passages in Scripture. And that's, in my experience, in dealing with, with folk who hold to that uh, viewpoint, that's really what they want to see with the, the word covenant and with our dealing with covenant. We really just see it in light of that particular passage and not, br- uh, not bring it anywhere else and not understand the connections within Scripture itself with covenant. And in a sense, we are. We do hold to theological covenants because covenant theology, you see, is not really a uh, particular aspect of theology. This is something that, is, that has come home to me. When you talk about covenant theology, you are really just talking about theology. In a sense, covenant theology is just systematic theology and vice versa. I have this quote, I, I sprinkled a few quotes in your handbook there, but this wonderful quote from John Owen, writing in the, around the time of the Westminster Confession, he was a young man of, in his 20s at the time when the Confession was framed in the 1640s. But he writes, all true theology is based on some form of divine covenant. And you see, I think that's absolutely true. Covenant theology is, at the heart, really just systematic theology. And so in a week, we're going to sketch all of systematic theology. Uh, in a sense, that's what we have to do to cover what covenant theology connects with. You see, you can connect the covenant to any particular uh, passage or uh, locus, really, any topic of theology. If you talk about anything, it connects to the covenant. Even the Trinity connects to the covenant, as we'll see beginning tomorrow morning when we talk about the covenant of redemption. The divine counsel is a, uh, can be seen as a covenant. We'll talk about that for several hours. So you see, to represent covenant theology as interested in the theology of the Bible, I think is accurate. But let us hope that it's also true of us that we believe in the Bible and we believe in the biblical covenant. And so let us, uh, let us uh, respond to our brother and say, well, how about if we hold to both of them, the theological covenant and the biblical covenant? Now, I'd just like to mention also at this point, uh, it's, it's been a, our, uh, character, our characteristic of this century to spend a lot of time critiquing dispensationalism. And I think it, it is a, a, an aspect of theology that we... Uh, certainly disagree with and have to uh, um, respectfully disagree with them. But in this uh, week, I have no intent of critiquing anybody, really. Uh, So it's not going to be covenant theology versus somebody else. That's not my intent at all. What I'd really like to do is just uh, basically report on one of the more edifying things I've done in the last few years, and that is study covenant theology. It's just been, a, uh, for me personally, one of the most exciting things I've done uh, in, as a Christian is to just study this issue and study the divine covenant and to see how the unity of Scripture is uh, portrayed when you start understanding 
that there is a covenantal undergirding to all of Scripture. And I'd like to just sketch out some of those uh, findings for you and look at Scripture uh, and think about how we as people who hold to the covenant theology uh, can be stimulated to uh, get further into it because I know myself I want to get into it further. I have some uh, writing projects in mind and some a lot more thinking to do and a lot more learning to do. And I'd be glad, of course, to take questions. Um, I do have scheduled at the end of our time on Friday a question and answer hour, so you're, you know, if you want to wait till then, that's fine as well. And I'll be around to be able to, uh, to chat with you, of course. So I'm not going to really critique anybody. This isn't really covenant theology versus dispensationalism. I'm not going to do that at all. It's also obviously too broad, if, if it's true that covenant theology is systematic, too broad to do that all here. We're going to sketch out primarily uh, the biblical material on covenants and then suggest how uh, the biblical material on covenants is a unifying element in Scripture. This is uh, really what I'd like to focus on is the unity of Scripture in the divine covenants. So we'll be focusing on that, on those aspects. But to really do covenant theology really is just to do systematics. And I want you to understand that this won't really be, you know, doing all of covenant theology. So we'll, uh, and I'll, I think that will become clearer when we uh, get into this. However, there, there are some really practical and important issues uh, connected to covenant theology. If it's that broad, the Christian life is directly impacted by your understanding of God's covenant. One thing we're going to learn tomorrow is that, well, and work on and think about and uh, wrestle with is the thought that the triune God himself in eternity purposed a redemptive covenant for you. That this was not an ad hoc uh, procedure that God entered into, but this, this redemption, this salvation, this union with God himself through Christ Jesus is something that is rooted in eternity in the Trinity. That God himself had you in mind from all eternity. You see, covenant theology and election go hand in hand. This is why you don't find uh, non-Calvinists who are covenant theologians. In fact, I mean, the two just develop together. But the, you see, the covenant begins with God. Covenant begins with God himself taking counsel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to redeem you. And that counsel is called a covenant. God himself makes an oath. And we'll see that tomorrow. And that is an element of covenant. And you see, this impacts the Christian life. If it doesn't, you're not hearing me. God has taken an oath about you. God is committed from all eternity about you. This is, this, is how, this is the very anchor of our Christian life. This is how we can approach God in confidence. We have his oath. In a, in a sense, God has said, I, I, I stake my life on the fact that I allow you to come to me because the heart and soul of the covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my son. You will be my daughter. You are my child. And you see, that's the very heart of the blessing of the covenant with God.
Well, in the handbook, I also mentioned I'd sketch uh, some of the history. What I'd like to do is just give you some quotes along the way of the history of covenant theology and really just do more in the scriptures. It's not my expertise. The history of covenant theology isn't my expertise. I've been reading some, but I don't... Um, I, I just need to work on it more before I could do anything authoritative, but I'd be glad to tell you what I know, which won't take too long on history of covenant theology. Uh, but I've been reading a little bit, uh, really working more in the scripture. So that's my plan, is really just to get into it and, uh, and look at scripture with you. Now to begin, we have to know what a covenant is. I gave you here on your handout a very long, uh, a very short definition and a very long explanation. I'd like, to, I'd like you to understand from the beginning, this definition really is of any sort of covenant. Now, often when you see a definition of covenant in a covenant theologian, they're talking specifically about a redemptive covenant and often talking about the covenant of grace and defining that. And I'm not doing that here. I'm defining covenant in any form in Scripture, which includes marriage. So you see, marriage is compact between two people, but the Scripture calls that a covenant in Proverbs and elsewhere. And you see, I, I wanted a definition which is as broad as all of Scripture has for covenant. So let me look at this with you together. In your hand, handbook, the whole thing is there. So let's look at that. A covenant is a solemnly bound arrangement or disposition between two or more parties. It sounds very abstract until you start talking about the particular forms in which a covenant might take under that definition. First of all, the solemnity of the bond is usually inspired by an oath which usually entails an invocation of divine penal sanctions, that is, the threats of divine vengeance in case of default. This is what an oath entails. And the form of a biblical oath is, if I don't, may I, and then perish, essentially. And as we'll see, and as you, I, I assume you already know, in uh, Genesis 15, God himself takes upon himself the burden of that oath by passing between the slain animals to confirm the oath with Abraham. God himself invokes his own death. Uh, of course, impossible with God. But he swears an oath that he will uh, fulfill his covenant with Abraham. And this is part of that uh, solemn covenant making. The solemnity gives a covenant a binding character. You can talk about covenant as a bond between these parties. Sometimes expressed as law, statutes, injunctions. Sometimes his legal character brings in features, other features into the realm of covenant, obligation, witness, testimony, transgression, curse and vengeance, blessings for covenant keeping, abrogation and annulment, mediation, surety, etc. It may have been seen as features given for the administration of the covenantal arrangement. So a covenant often has these other features as part of it, so that sometimes you'll have elements of covenant addressed in scripture but the word doesn't appear there. This is really why I'm, I'm going here now. And I want you to be fully convinced of that. I'm going to show you some scriptures where you have to believe that. But this is a very important hermeneutical point. Hermeneutics means how you understand the scripture. It's, it's, it's essential to understanding the scripture to know that a concept can be present in scripture even if the word isn't used, a particular word you're looking for. So... Now, under number three here, or 1C, 
Even where a covenant is enacted without an explicit oath-taking, the notion of divine sanction of the covenant may be understood. This is quite frequent in Scripture. Number two, the arrangement or disposition may have a variety of forms or effects which are not mutually exclusive. That is, the covenant of works or of grace. Now, the word pactum salutis is the Latin word for covenant of redemption. I'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, sometimes uh, the effect of this is friendship or close mutual relations. Sometimes it's a marriage that results. Other times there are pure promises from one party to another. So sometimes the covenant is invoked between two parties, but only one is making a promise to another and solemnly binds the, the promise through covenant. Sometimes there's a grant or an inheritance. So an inheritance, a will, can be called a kind of covenant. This is why I use the word disposition in the definition. It's a disposition of something. But sometimes that disposition is property upon the death of the testator. And this is why we have a New Testament and an Old Testament. We get that term from the Latin, which is the word they use to translate covenant. So really, when you read your New Testament, you should read that as New Covenant and Old Testament, Old Covenant. It's just from the Latin word testamentum, which they use to translate the Greek word covenant. Um, and, and part of what they're communicating there, and it's a scriptural principle, that the, the redemption that we have in Christ is sometimes portrayed as an inheritance passed on by covenant. And this is uh, uh, where we get the connection with testament and the last will and testament. Well, there may be terms, conditions, stipulations, sanctions attached to the arrangement uh, on one or more parties. It, it varies. It depends on the kind of covenant you're dealing with. And finally, three, the covenant uh, disposition may be unilaterally imposed by one party and the other. This, of course, is the case with God. We never go to God and say and strike a bargain with him and dictate to him the terms of covenant. So, you know, you can have this broad definition of covenant, but we're not talking about dealing with God in this broad way. Uh, a redemptive covenant always has a specific form. And with God, he treats us as his creatures, but also as his friends. So he has this uh, way of approaching us that uh, is truly we are his creatures and, and uh, he is our suzerain, our king, and we are his subjects. And yet, also, you have this element of love and fellowship with God. So the covenant, you know, is set up as a great treaty with God, and yet it's one that he imposes as our king, and yet it, it transcends that and moves into a covenant of friendship and even, indeed, a marriage pact. And I use the word party here to broaden out, really to mean the covenant doesn't have to be with a particular individual. The covenant with Abraham was to Abraham and his seed and his children. They were included in the covenant. And this is why I use that term, party. So covenant, in essence, is a commitment. It's an obligation on some. It's a solemnly bound relationship. And, and within these broad confines, we're going to start narrowing when we speak about the redemptive covenants that we'll be looking at together this week. Are there any questions on, uh, on that stuff? It's a little abstract at this point, and 
that's the way it has to be at the beginning. We're going to start very broad and then narrow down to specifics and sort of fill in the gaps. But I wanted to start broad enough so that you understand that uh, the, the, the phenomenon of covenant in Scripture is very broad. It includes marriage. It includes uh, relations within the Trinity. Uh, it uh, includes relations with God in various forms. Now, the thing about covenant theology, which is so attractive, yes, John. A con, a contract. Some covenants could be contracts. Are you are you thinking about a contract with a labor contract? I don't this definition could cover that. Like I said, this is a definition that covers any kind of covenants, including a marriage covenant. Where it's it's quite different from the redemptive covenants or dealing with God. So it's a definition that covers all the kinds of things that the word covenant in scripture refers to. This was my intent, and maybe it's not clear. My intent is to give you a, a definition that will cover very broadly any use of the word covenant in Hebrew or Greek in the, in the scripture. So some contracts are covenants. It's a disposition, it's agreement, and it's, and it's bound. Now in scripture, or you don't have a contract that's sanctioned by an oath. Maybe that's the difference. But there is a sanction with your uh, rental agreement. You you agree to a penalty. It's just not sanctioned by a divine oath. Yes? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get right into that. I'm starting very broadly now and abstractly, and we're going to get real specific. The idea of representation is the heart of the covenant of grace. That's the, that's the central difference between the covenant of grace and covenant of works is that there's a mediator. There's a representative who takes upon himself that, that obligation. And it's not a central feature of covenants in general, but it's something that God had initiated. Some of the debates in covenant theology have been settled in the past and are sometimes brought up again and I'm, I'm going to skirt some of them. The reason is it's been settled pretty well. Also, I don't think those debates were always very fruitful because they didn't quite get at the phenomenon of the covenant in the scripture they were trying to. You can think of problems that would arise from a particular viewpoint on covenant and yet, um, if you make careful enough distinctions, they really don't have to lead there. Now, the, the question is on whether there's a unilateral or a bilateral character of the covenant. Is that essential? And the answer is both. 
all covenants are, are bilateral because you have two parties. If you don't, you don't have a covenant. But, all, but some covenants can be unilateral with that bilateral character. One issues the covenant, imposes it on the other, and yet that other person is in covenant. There's a mutuality involved. I think that's the best answer. And, and in fact, that, that debate was addressed by Turretin in the 1700s, and I thought it answered very well, and very carefully with a lot of a real nuance that is helpful, I found. This is volume two of his systematics. I'm really going to be hitting the main issues of covenant. All right. So when covenant theology organizes what we understand about God around the covenant, is that warranted? In my, in my opinion, it is a, a brilliant stroke because it's a scriptural principle. It is using the scripture's own organizing principle for redemption to organize our theologizing about scripture. You see, the way we understand scripture should flow out of scripture. Even the method of how we understand scripture should flow from scripture. This is something that doesn't strike everybody as obvious. I deal with that with students sometimes who, who find that very strange, that I should use the scripture to inform my method of how to treat scripture. In other words, that, that scripture is authoritatively teaching me how to read scripture. Uh, it's sort of a no-brainer to me. <laughs> but for some people, it just doesn't seem like that's uh, right. It seems arbitrary. The word I get is that's arbitrary. And I, I keep thinking, it's just the opposite of arbitrary. It's the scripture who's authoritative, not me. Uh, and I'm not just going around picking anybody to interpret scripture for me as my norm. I'm choosing scripture to interpret scripture. You see the point. And you see, I think that's what we're doing with covenant theology, is we're taking covenant, which is a concept of scripture, used to organize how God deals with us, to describe how God deals with it and develop that within Scripture itself and see its organic connections with the whole of Scripture. And this is what covenant theology has done. That's why it's not just... Uh, covenant theology isn't just dealing with a couple of little issues. It really is a way to organize our understanding of all of Scripture. And it's beautiful for that reason in that God himself organizes scripture around the covenant. Now this is most obvious with the Old Testament. You have the word covenant, the Hebrew word berit, appearing 287 times. That's an important word. That's a lot of times in the Old Testament. But only 33 times in the New Testament. The New Covenant. Let's use that word for a bit. Why do you, only have, why do you have so rare in the New Testament? I think, I, I, I think the reason is pretty obvious. It's like the doctrine of God. You don't really have a lot of discussion about the nature of God in the New Testament, do you? Some, in some places. But there's an awful lot of assumption, let's say in the Gospels, about who God is and what he's like. The unity of God isn't questioned by the Jews, so they didn't discuss it. And it's the character of things that people assume 
that they don't talk about. You see, in, in America, politicians don't debate over whether Republican our Republican form of, of uh, government is right or wrong. And I don't mean Republican in the public political party. We're a republic, not a democracy. I understand. Or democracy, okay? No one really questions democracy and talks about it and argues over it. I mean, it's something assumed. And it's the characters in the scripture as well, the things that are assumed, the things that are obvious, the things that you can rely upon, are not really fully discussed. This was an argument I made about the omniscience of God and the fact that he sees the future. That's being denied today in theological circles, that God can see the future and that he knows all things before they happen. That's denied. And my study of the first century has shown that no one in the first century denied that. In the pagan world, everybody believed that the gods knew the future. It really wasn't an issue. They all believed in divination. They, they consulted mediums. They went through all sorts of rituals to find out what the gods knew about the future because they believed the gods knew the future. It really wasn't an issue. And I don't think in the scripture, in the New Testament, you have Paul saying, by the way, you know that God knows the future, don't you? And, and goes off on why God knows the future. He doesn't because no one questioned it and you didn't have to teach on it. I think that's the same thing with covenant. And the reason I think this is persuasive is it's not really the fact that covenant doesn't appear very often that's important. What's really important with the word covenant in the New Testament is where it appears. I want you to think about in the Gospels. There's only one place in all the Gospels where the word covenant appears, and that's in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus says, this is my blood, of the covenant. Now, think about what Jesus was doing in the Lord's Supper. When was that? It was right before he sacrificed himself for his people. It was right on the eve of his great self-sacrifice to accomplish everything and to finish off all of his work. Remember in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he, he says, I've drawn to the end of my work, Father. Now is the time to glorify me. I fulfilled everything you have laid out for me. My whole work is completed up to this point. Now I'm ready to be glorified, to be, uh, I'm going to be taken and go to Golgotha. And yet you see, it's on the eve of that that he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He could have chose all sorts of other times to talk about his covenant working, but he chose that time, which is the center of his work. And right at the very heart of what Jesus was doing in his sacrifice on the cross, he says, this is a covenant act. Now, if he says, everything I'm about can be summarized as, this is my blood of the covenant. I will now offer the blood of the covenant. Remember what I said about Zechariah 9? Now the blood of the covenant is going to be spilled for the remission of sins for many. Now then that, that word covenant may be rare, but it's important. So that you can summarize everything that Jesus is doing around covenant. So the fact that the word doesn't appear very often really isn't important. It's where it appears and what it's all about. Let me remind you of a passage that it's difficult to bring up in this happy context because it's a very uh, scary passage. 
it's a passage of, with a lot of difficulty for us because it's threatening. And it's one, I think, if you look at it, just look at it and just talk about it. I think you'll see also how important this word covenant is. This is Hebrews 10, 29. Here the author is dealing with people who are apostatizing from Christ. They are setting aside all that Christ represents and turning away from him back to Judaism. And this is what makes it very awesome. These are people who have been included in the church and yet are uh, tempted to remove themselves from their fellowship with God and return to the types and shadows. Now in verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as had, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You have two members of the Trinity in that verse. And you have... You see, he says right at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is covenant. The blood of the covenant which sanctified that person. That's what they're turning their back on. The blood of the covenant. And if you turn your back on the blood of the covenant, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're insulting the Holy Spirit. Now I know this is a, you know, a threatening passage, but I want you to just think about that just what that means. What it means is the blood of this covenant we're dealing with is a way to summarize all the benefits of Christ given to us, to sanctify us. In the, the, the author of Hebrews uses that term specifically to mean cleanse you so that you can draw near to God and be in fellowship with him. So that you can enter into the Holy of Holies. You know, he's been going on and on. He says in verse 19 of this chapter, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of the covenant. He says, you can enter into the Holy of Holies. The one in heaven, not made by hands, but the real one. Not the copy, but the real one. We'll look at that, those teachings in Hebrews later. And he says, why? Because of the blood of the covenant. Now, doesn't covenant sound like an important idea now? In this context, you see, it's the very heartbeat of Christianity. And it's set right here alongside the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. So I would say covenant is important in the New Testament. That's, I think that uh, should be clear. So, we've established, I hope, that covenant is important in the New Testament, even though the word doesn't appear that often. But how can we know when covenant is operating if the word isn't there? Well, I think if you take that definition and start seeing it at work and start studying covenant and know its elements and what's important to covenant, you will find elements of it even where the word doesn't appear. Now, let me show you how that works in a very obvious place. I won't turn to the passage, um, the first passage, but it's a, it's a well-known one. When David wants to make the temple for God and God 
says, you won't make it, but your son will. Instead, I will build your house, etc. And of course, this is the promise to David that his son will sit on his throne forever. And this is the uh, great Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7. And in that chapter in 2 Samuel, the word covenant does not appear. You won't find it. However, in Psalm 89, you have, actually a couple of times earlier, but you have here in verses 30 to 36, this statement. If his sons forsake my laws, David's sons, and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. This comes right out of Second Samuel. And I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. So you see, God says, that which I did in Second Samuel was a covenant making. Why? It was a solemnly bound oath. It was a promise which God sanctions by his word. And if God says it, he will do it. It's a violation of his person to break his word. God cannot lie. He is truth, so that if he were to lie, he would not be God anymore. You have to understand that. God can't lie. There are things that God cannot do, children. If somebody says, uh, can God do everything? The answer is God can do all of his holy will, isn't it? If you believe your catechism, your little shorter catechism, and that's right. He can do all of his holy will, but he can't do everything. He can't sin, you see. He can't lie. He can't, he can't violate his person. It would be a violation of who he is to lie. And when God says something, it is tantamount to a covenant in this situation where he makes a promise and he guarantees it with his word. And so he says, this was a covenant that I set up with David. So in 2 Samuel, you don't see the word covenant, and yet God interprets that as a covenant. And this is what's very important to understand. Well, you have other places. Uh, in, I gave you some references in your handbook there. Phineas in Numbers 25, 6 through 13, God says that he will include him in his covenant of peace. Then in Psalm 106, that's, uh, that same episode is recalled and the word covenant of peace doesn't appear. Instead, it says, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The same phrase is found in Abraham's, the testimony about Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's the same phrase about Phineas. So receiving the covenant of peace was being reckoned as righteous. Isn't that amazing? You see, what that means is receiving the covenant of peace means all that that means covenantally. It connects with other issues of covenant, namely that his sins would be forgiven and he would be accounted as righteous. This is the very heart of the New Testament. The New Covenant is justification by faith. It says that Phineas was justified by faith. That, that act was reckoned to him as an act of faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He is included in the great redemptive program. Well, in Jeremiah 33, we have uh, God recalling his various covenants. He says he made a covenant with day and night. 
He says he makes a covenant with David and the Levitical priests. Now, which covenant did he make with the Levites? There's no place in Scripture where it's recorded he made a specific covenant with the Levites. He established them as the priests of the Mosaic Covenant, but not a specific covenant with the Levites. So what you have here, again, is where God set up the Levites to be his uh, ministers, his temple ministers in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, is tantamount to making a covenant with them. So that God, looking back at that arrangement, that disposition with the Levites, establishing them in a certain role in his covenant community, he says, that was my making a covenant with you. So, you see that even though the word covenant doesn't appear, Scripture interprets certain things as covenantal when it interprets them. And so we should too. That's the point. We are warranted now to do that as well, as long as we're right. <laughs> you know, it's not we can do anything. To call anything a covenant, of course, we have to be guided by scriptural principles. But if we follow scripture's example and carefully understand how it is interpreting certain things as covenantal by understanding what a covenant is and getting more into it, then I believe that we are warranted to see covenant even where the word doesn't appear. Now, one place where we've seen covenant so clearly in covenant theology is at the heart of the covenant of grace, the great benefit of being in covenant with God. Now, I'm not talking about broad covenant now here, but I'm talking about the covenant we have with our Lord and the very wonderful formula that's used. And that term covenant formula is used by a theologian. I read it in Turretin. He invokes this uh, phenomenon. And he says, you find this formula everywhere. And when you start seeing this formula, as it were, it's not a dry thing or anything, you start seeing it in Scripture, you're going to just see how broad covenant really is in the Scripture. And that formula is the one that God expresses in Genesis 7, 7 through 8, is very clear, we'll find it elsewhere, that the great benefit of God entering into covenant with Abraham is I will be your God and the God of your seed after you. And I will be their God as well. And you will be mine. Mutual possession with God. He owns us, and we own him. He is our God. We can claim him as our own. Think about all the places where somebody says, can I do that against my God, Joseph? Think about all the places where somebody says, this is my God and the God of my Father. Think about all the places where you find even on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross and Psalm 22. I want you to think about that. Jesus is saying, you are my covenant God. My God, my God. Not just God, God, why have you forsaken me? But my God, you have said, I will be your God. Now you are my God. Why have you forsaken me if we have this covenantal relation? And so you see, we can make the same claim on God. My God, my God, why have you done this to me? 
You are my God. And you see, that's the very heart of being in covenant with God. That's the great formula, as it were. It sounds sort of dry, but boy, not the truth of it. I will be your God and the God of your children after you. When we look at the New Testament, we're going to see that that promise was never revoked. And indeed, the new covenant was embedded in that promise so that this has effect on your families as well. As you know, we baptize babies in our communion because we're covenant theologians. We believe in the continuity of scriptures at this point in particular. I God of your children after you. I lay claim on those children of yours. They are my children. In Ezekiel, God rebukes the Israelites and says, those are my children that you made pass through the fires of Moloch. Those are my children, not yours, when they took their children and sacrificed them to idols. So you see, this is the very heart of the covenant. And from Genesis to Revelation, you will find this formula over and over and over. And it is the wonderful truth of the covenant. This is the underlying fabric of Scripture, is that true? That's the great benefit, that's the great payoff for us as Christians in being in covenant with God. And that's the great payoff for understanding this, I think, this covenant theology stuff is getting intimate and more intimate with God and understanding just how deeply he is committed to us by oath. He has fixed an oath upon us, as it were. And of course, understanding the sacraments in that light as well makes uh, participating in the sacraments for me much richer now. In particular, when we get to the very brief discussion of sacraments, I'm going to tell you one thing. When you participate in the sacraments, I want you to think about what God is doing as well as what we're doing because there's a mutuality to a covenant act like a sacrament. And of course, in our standards, what is a sacrament? I know I've got some children here who know the answer. What is a sacrament? Go ahead, shout it out. The catechism. Question and answer 92. Well, I'll read it. A sacrament, I, I know the questions very well. I'm working on the answers, you know. <laughs> I always ask my kids the questions and they give me answers. I rip them off. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> but I'm working on the answers myself. I'm going to have to get them to ask me the questions. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs and Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are signified and represented, sealed and applied to believers. New covenant. You see, a sacrament is a covenantal ordinance because it expresses that covenant bond. I am your God and you are my children. And that's what a sacrament is all about. So, covenant theology is an overriding conviction of Scripture's unity. It is a way of understanding the unity of Scripture. And brothers and sisters, the attacks of critical scholarship have focused on that specific point. In, in, in our circles, we've spent a lot of time putting out fires on critical scholarship. I've done the same thing. I've written defending the authenticity of Scripture and the reliability, historical reliability in, in 
you know, critical journals. But to tell you the truth, the real attack is on the unity of Scripture. Is Scripture a divinely breathed unity? And I believe that covenant theology is an organic expression of Scripture's unity. And to see that, that from beginning to end, from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22, there is a binding thread throughout all of Scripture, and it is covenant, and all that that connects with. And so when we talk about covenant theology, we're, we're talking about a way really to see the most glorious unity of God's working with people throughout Scripture. It's a recognition, though, as well, of the diversity we have in Scripture. There is movement in Scripture. There is a movement between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Those are terms found in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul distinguishes himself as a minister of the New Covenant over against the minister of the Old Covenant. So there is a recognition of the diversity of Scripture without compromising the unity. Now, little bells should go off in your head and you should be thinking Trinity, right? The doctrine of the Trinity is approached the same way. The unity of God while recognizing the distinctions within the Godhead that don't separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into three gods. And this is exactly uh, really where we get the, the impetus for this. There's a stability of God's working in the church. The church was founded at Genesis 3.15 with that great promise. The church was already in existence at Genesis 2, Genesis 1.26. When, when God created Adam and Eve, Adam out of the dust and Eve out of the rib, that was the beginning of the church. But they did a covenant act of disobedience, didn't they? God said, I am your God, I am your king, and I give you these orders. In the day that you eat that, the, tree, the fruit of that tree, you will die. And when we look at this passage, we're going to see that what Adam did was switch covenant allegiances the devil and claimed him as his God and that was a a, a, a a renunciation of God as his suzerain and adopting a new liege lord, a new covenant lord and yet God reclaimed him and that's why there had to be en enmity uh, within the seed and that is why we have uh, the Genesis 3.15 is really the, the beginning of the church as she is being redeemed so there's a stability of God's working in the church despite the diversity. And of course, our brothers and sisters will disagree with us, but this impacts the, the uh, issue of whether Israel and the church are really one and the same in the end, whether there isn't a development of the church out of Israel. Uh, the unity of the sacramental substance. It's of course, when we talk about baptism, we always connect it to circumcision right there in Genesis uh, 17. This is also an issue raised by covenant theology. Also, the, the issue of the norm of human behavior. God is our covenant Lord and his law doesn't change. He has instituted his law written in our heart. We have the law of God as our authoritative, binding character from our covenant Lord at creation. And it's written on our heart so that all people who are God's creatures 
rational creatures understand his demands as our covenant Lord. And that doesn't change until the end of the world when we are perfected. And yet his law will still be the same as an expression of his holy person. So there's a unity of scripture in the law as well. Covenant theology is inspired by the Trinity and it is fully Trinitarian involvement of all three persons of the Trinity in our redemption as a covenant act. We'll look at that tomorrow morning. Covenant theology is, uh, focuses on justification and explains it, I think, much better than the Lutherans do. I tried to convince a Lutheran of that not too long ago, but I didn't succeed. He was an Old Testament scholar, but uh, I did my best. Uh, that our understanding of justification is fully Lutheran and yet a little bit better because, you see, this impacts uh, representation. We understand Christ as our covenant head and his actions were our actions and that's a covenant act. He is our covenant representative uh, and covenant is embedded in scripture in that way. We understand the relation of the Old Testament and the New Testament in a certain way. Covenant theology impacts ecclesiology, really any, any topic, the doctrine of the church, any topic you can think of uh, has to do with covenant theology. Finally, I know it's getting late. Finally, our standards are thoroughly covenantal. They were written at a time when covenant theology was really pretty well blossomed. There were still some issues to be worked out that weren't integrated into our uh, confessional doctrines. But it is remarkable that we have a confession of our faith that is so thoroughly covenantal. I gave you a quote from Warfield where he points out that the Westminster Standards are organized around covenant. It's not incidental to it. I'd like to suggest that the Shorter Catechism, for example, and question and answer one, a very famous question and answer, which I do know the answer to finally, uh, I, I, I've got one down and working on two. Uh, know all the questions. But think about question and answer one of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Why? Because he is our covenant creator. Why should we glorify God? He's our creator, right? He created us and imposes an obligation upon us to glorify him. That's law. That's a demand. And that's a demand of a, of a, of a cover, covenant suzerain who is in relation with us and who makes requirements upon us and yet we, and if we were perfected, would do gladly because it's the best thing there is to do. When we are perfected in holiness, brothers and sisters, that's all we'll want to do. We can't even conceive of that now because we know ourselves to be sinners. And yet, when we are glorified, to glorify God is the best thing you can do. It will give great joy to glorify only God. And you see, this is a covenant act. It's, it's a, an act of respect to someone who is over you in covenant with you. It's a covenant act and to enjoy him forever. I will be your God and you will be my son. That's the heart of the covenant right there. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To be in that intimate fellowship with God. Marriage with God. 
The marriage between Christ and the church is the foundation of human marriage in Ephesians 5. And you see, that is a covenant act. It's, a, it's an act of firm commitment. And God places his oath on it and says, I am yours and you are mine. That's what covenant theology is all about. And we'll be talking about that wonderful stuff this week. Let's end with prayer. Not to us, O Lord, not to us be glory given, but to you alone, to your name, O God. You are our God, and you have claimed us. Even our little children, O Lord, you have claimed for yourself, and you are jealous for them. Father, we love that truth. We are here because we love these truths. Help us to understand them more richly that we may glorify you and enjoy you, even now as well as forever. Grant us your grace this evening. Give us all understanding of the scripture as we open it together. And give us your grace and your presence and be glorified among us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.